Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Well, hey, Bartlett. Hey, Thanks Tara. for coming down it's to talk to us today. Always great to come down here. I yeah. think the story of Black Earth Meats is incredibly useful for people because people all over the country want to start small-scale slaughter facilities in particular. Right. Um, we actually have a lot of really small ones here. They're fewer around the country. Right. Um, but they're incredibly difficult to make work. And so... Hearing your story, I think, can be super helpful to other people. I saw this huge demand for local and organic meats. Now, this before grass-fed was even a term. Right. So, but it was the idea of people wanted natural meats, smaller scale kind of stuff. And it, it just, it wasn't out there. And I, there, here in Madison, you had a few restaurants bringing in animals from local farmers and they had a so some idea that you could do local meat but you had to be really really good either as the farmer on your marketing or the restaurant to bring in meat that's satisfied i mean not only the quality but the consistency throughout and be able to utilize that animal so i always remind people you have a 1400 pound animal for a beef walking in the door and the tenderloin is four and a half pounds (laughs) And there's only one. And there's only well, there are two. They actually two. split them, okay, but it's on yeah. either side. But either side of the spine there. But it's you have this very small amount that people consider the premier steak. So they said, "Oh, I'd love to do local. I want you know a case of tenderloins a week." Right. And it's like, well, that's going to be ten animals mm-hmm. to die, along with fourteen thousand pounds of <laughs> animal that's not used, so you can right. have your case of tenderloin. Right. So that that was a sense of scale. So there was this demand for more people to have the local and the organic meats coming through, and no one was really satisfying at all. So how big were you at, at the time? At our peak, we got to 47 employees. Okay. And we had how much, about 200, how many I would say about 200 hogs and 140 beef coming through a week. And what had happened is we got our own business, and, and the most complex part of our business was the distribution. So with with our that food people describe, who who always me. yeah, who always complain about the distributor how much they're taking. It's like I've mm-hmm. been there mm-hmm. and that is brutal. Mm-hmm. Brutal. But mm-hmm. we'll, we can come back to that. But so we had our own distribution we but then what we found was to make the processor work. Very much we're talking about the farm gate. Like the sure. key of the cheese was to make the farm work. Right. The key of all our marketing was to make the processor work. Because right. you, ha- you have a brick-and-mortar facility, and you have employees, and you can say, oh, it's a variable cost. It's like, no, they need full-time work. Mm-hmm. And they will find a way to make sure they're getting their 40 hours in. Period. Well, right. And the other thing I've, that's related to this is that people don't know how to cut meat anymore. So it's not like these are just, you know, well, if we lose this one, we'll get another one. It's not that easy, right? Yeah, we figured it was a minimum of a year to get people competent, just in basic, yeah. let alone specialize in being able to push things. Yeah. Um, and in fact, a lot of times I put, you put your new people on packaging and the final washdown, which mm-hmm. is uh, really just an inspection right, kind right. of thing, or doing the HACCP. 
Right. Like go around and fill out the paperwork. Uh, the the physical skill, and that's what many of us don't understand, is the skill of craft is very much a forgotten thing. It, it hasn't been honored in the last 30 years. Right. Uh, everybody's been pushed to university. You know, if you go to tech school, it's almost an apologetic mm-hmm. thing. You know, that, that whole trade world... Uh, you see a little bit left in carpentry, but even that, I mean, they, they've systematized all these things so that high-skilled craftsman has become very much the artisan mm-hmm. and just the good blue-collar kind of job. Well, this is very much that blue-collar job where you have to learn in an apprentice kind of program. It's just you can't watch videos. You can't, I mean, you got to You actually have to cut meat, yes. And it takes about a year to get any kind of, and even from there, before we let them run the saw, it's a couple years in. The saw is where you're, the animal comes down uh, as a full carcass and you start breaking it into the, the bits. It's called pieces. primals and there it's, it's, I call them giant puzzle pieces coming out. But you miscut that and you could lose $40 of value with one cut. Oops, mm-hmm. I trimmed that off a little much. And that's even if you can salvage the rest. I mm-hmm. mean, it's, it's a tricky thing. And where we were, what we're really focusing on, because we did so much custom work and had this... Uh, connection between the farmer and uh, either the consumer or the restaurateur is we had to show that every animal that came through was traced by piece of meat. So when they got a piece of meat, whether it's a steak or a primal, we could tell them which farm it came from, which animal. Right. And that was really that transparency. We could show that. In fact, early on, we had a complaint from Willie Street Co-op, dominant co-op up here in Madison. And they were one of our big partners early on. And someone had gotten a steak of some sort and said, oh, there's this off flavor. Something didn't taste mm-hmm. right. And they thought it was spoiled. But we're like, oh. So we pulled open the book. And we found that the customer had bought it two days after it had been delivered. Mm-hmm. And it had been cut 10 days after the animal had been killed. Mm-hmm. And we knew exactly when it was cut, who cut it, when it was packaged, and the, mm-hmm. the temperatures along the way. And from the animal had been slaughtered, we knew which farmer it was, which animal number. And we called the farmer and said, just weird thing, but mm-hmm. this animal we had a complaint about. Mm-hmm. I want to know what you Tell think. Tell me about the animal. And he's like, oh, that's funny because, you know, that animal and the, the other one I brought in that day, they'd, when, when they're in the waiting area, they'd pulled off to the side. And I saw them. They got into some wet silage on the side I just kind of put there for storage and didn't even think about. But... You know, sometimes that'll that'll do. You know, give them a little bloating or something funny that way. We're like, oh, so nothing health-wise, safety-wise, anything mm-hmm. bad, just mm-hmm. created this off flavor. So we were able to go back and say, here's the history, mm-hmm. and we had you know had an identical package that you know we found another piece of meat that we made sure it wasn't spoiled or anything funny. So we were able to get this whole story back to Willie Street, mm-hmm. which became a full-page paper or full article, article in their in paper, the paper, and you know the customer was thrilled. Because, again, like my example, the cup of coffee, here is a bad experience. That person had a bad mm-hmm. experience, either unexpected or just, mm-hmm. you know, didn't go right. But out of it, they're like, but look what I learned. Mm-hmm. I know where that animal came, and the history of that animal and how and it went And the farmer down. knew which animal That's it right. was and remembered what happened. So the sense yeah, of the, trust and confidence. Absolutely. Now, they may have a little like, oh, I want to hope the next one's better. But, yeah, but at yeah. least they're like, I have that confidence. So then they go back, they have a good experience. They're sold for life. Right. And it's that kind of transparency that uh, was part of what we're all of our marketing efforts, all our stuff. And it was a true thing mm-hmm. in that we literally opened the slaughter floor to visitors. Mm-hmm. So when I built the facility or rebuilt the facility, 
we put a big glass window from the retail area looking back on the process area. Mm -hmm. And that's where the animals come out of the cooler as carcasses. And you see the full, at this point, 800-pound carcass mm -hmm. hanging there. And you see the saw, you see the, the cutting, you see the packaging, you see all the employees. Mm -hmm. And this was a literal window on the world mm -hmm. so people could see it. There's no, there's no mystery of what we're doing. And then when they wanted, we would walk them back and I had all these painted lines where they could stand and watch the entire slaughter, mm -hmm. which a fair number did. It was, yeah. it was pretty interesting. Yeah. And it, for me, that's always been the hidden thing, the dark, oh, put it out in the countryside, put it where no one is, where a lot of abuses happen and things because no one wants to see it and you have all this mistrust. Mm -hmm. Instead, you put it right out in the open. It's like, there it so, is. So Lorenz Meats I, I, um, has a viewing room into their slaughter floor. Mm -hmm. And it's gla behind glass. Right. Um, and it was interesting when I went there because um, when they were giving me the tour, they said, you know, not a lot of people actually want to see it. But we, we thought it was, it was really important to us um, that the possibility was there for people to see this. Right. Yeah. I had a... Um I had two, three, no, three crews come through, four, I guess, if you include the documentary. But um, so we had, uh, what's the Eat Wisconsin? What's uh, Kyle Cherick's? Um, um, it's on Wisconsin it's on Foodie. Wisconsin Foodie come yeah. through and do a documentary. And that mm -hmm. guy was vegan and started eating meat after he saw our facility. Mm. Um, yeah. We had... Uh, Oh, that secret desire for a steak. I know. Steak. It's, it's true. And, yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, but the, the big one we had coming through was Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern, and that's a national mm -hmm. big, big deal, big deal. And they needed to get permission to come in from the feds mm -hmm. because they were filming different things, and the feds freaked out. I had three meetings with the federal inspectors and their supervisors. Who didn't want them in. Don't let them in. Absolutely not. You know, people don't understand when they're watching slaughter and they can misunderstand. And if there's anything that goes wrong, we're going to have to shut you down. They were freaking out. Mm -hmm. And then even when I said, look, I actually, this is one of two times I raised my voice with the inspectors. And I said, if I can't do it literally behind a glass wall where everybody can see, I have no interest in doing this. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, that's fine, but we cannot be filmed at all. Now, that is a federal law. They're not supposed to be filmed, mm -hmm. but they were... Just like, mm -hmm. we want nothing to do with mm -hmm. this. I think they put it in writing that mm -hmm. they, it was, it was crazy. And so when they came and they filmed and they did everything I told them not to do. I mean, they got in the face of the animals and they were caught, you know, whites and they're, you know, they ended up showing everything from the animal getting off the trailer all the way through the, the little barn we had to the moment of the shot. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, they, it's mm -hmm. like you hear the shot and they cut away so you don't see the animal go from standing down. But then they pick it up again and they watch mm -hmm. the whole disemboweling all the way through. And people went crazy. It's one of their most popular shows hmm. because they, they can see what's going on. Mm -hmm. And from that, they see the care that you can give when it's individual. Right. I think that's a, it's an important note. To what, one of the things for me is I have a Buddhist background. Uh, I was vegetarian for years. When we came in and I saw the necessity of this, not only where animals fit in a farm ecosystem, mm -hmm. which is a critical, critical part of a farm's ecosystem, um, but I think just the health mm -hmm. uh, for the humans and all mm -hmm. these things. For me, it was this needs to become a sacrifice, mm -hmm. not a killing, mm -hmm. and that people need to be trained in a way to honor what's going on here. So we actually put up a sign. So right. we, we honor these animals for by their death, we gain life. Mm -hmm. 
And it became a very powerful message uh, for my butchers and mm-hmm. for everyone else that this is something different. I bet they they knew it was different, right? Because they did. of that. Oh, yeah. it was comp- you know, so the crew I inherited, the first few slaughters we went through when I was learning mm-hmm. everything, um, I called it very cowboy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you know, people react very poorly to killing. Mm-hmm. It isn't it is a hard thing. It's a hard thing it's to a kill. It's a very hard thing. Pain, yes. And so a lot of people react by being angry or uh, or they get depressed or some of them get mm-hmm. masochistic and all. What these guys did as a way to combat it is they, they would cheer. Hmm. So they, it was very, I called it very cowboy. They go, yeah, let's go. You got it. Yeah. Nice job. You got that shot. And it was like mm-hmm. a you rah rah thing yeah. to kind of mask what was happening. Mm-hmm. And personally, I was, I was appalled. I bet. It just, it really shocked me. So I, we went through a lot of uh, different training uh, on how to handle the animals, what the shot is. What, specific the mechanics of it, not mm-hmm. just do this, but here's why you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Here's how it happens. Here's what's going on, so that if done properly, the the brain. What what happens is a shot to the basically the forehead um, with a captive bolt gun. So it's a steel bar that shoots out with a 44 magnum. So there's no bullet mm-hmm. anywhere in, but it's this bolt that shoots out, and it's not that you were shooting the animal like you think a bullet going in ripping people up it's a super concussion mm-hmm. so the force of that comes out and hits the skull and you're actually getting the thickest part of the skull so it shakes the brain mm-hmm. instantly so that all sensation is gone now 99.9 mm-hmm. percent of the time it also is the death blow mm-hmm. but technically it's a stunning technique mm-hmm. and what's important about that is by the time the neurons can fire hey i heard something or i felt something there's no brain to go to. Mm-hmm. It's it's gone. Right. So there's complete insensitivity. And that's right. an Im- important thing that was explaining to these guys, like, you do this, the animal mm-hmm. just, it's like a light switch, on, off. Right. And then you you um, slit the throat and that drains the blood out. And that is technically what causes mm-hmm. the death. Uh, by training my guys in this, they got much calmer. Mm, interesting. And what was very interesting to me um, was people coming to watch walked away and they talked almost universally about the sense of reverence on the kill floor. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even saying thing like kill floor for me is, right. I, I'm used to it. It's my industry, yeah. but it, it sounds horrible. Mm-hmm. But when you've created this environment where you treat the animals well and you let mm-hmm. them do the movement based on where you stand, you make sure the slaughter is done properly. The whole thing is now in this very intense food safety issue um, without machines, without a mm-hmm. lot of noise. Um, everyone really settled. Uh, a lot of the guys worked for me. They, their sense of food safety was reminding each other, like, you're doing this for your grandmother. Mm-hmm. You're feeding your grandmother. Mm-hmm. And that was their shorthand of like, oh, this is one of my most treasured people. I need to make sure it's done well. Um, so out of that whole thing, just created this very calm, quiet, almost spiritual connection between the animals and the farmers and my butchers and who we're selling to. And that certainly went through the messaging. Um, one of my biggest revelatory moments is out of that, when I'd created this and we're starting to make some strides, I had the Willie Street uh, head of catering come in and they do a lot of purchasing, obviously. And, and I had all the other Willie Street people and there were like five or six coming through and I talked about the humane treatment and the animals and the organic and all. And he kept, this guy Josh kept wandering off and we talked to the different guys, a lot of Mexicans and all, and was talking to them. And 
I was a little bit irked, I guess, like, I'm over here telling my story. Why aren't mm-hmm. you with us? And he'd be off chattering. And I'm like, okay. And at the end, he pulled me aside and he said, you know, the most impressive part of your facility. And I'm thinking the house of plan, right, the food safety, right, the main right. hand. He's like, your people are happy. I'm like, what, what, what do you mean? I mean, for me, it was a no-brainer. I'm like, of course no, I right, want people. Course, He's like, yeah. I have been to so many restaurants and so many production facilities and a few slaughterhouses. No one's ever happy. Mm-hmm. It's like, your people are happy. Mm-hmm. And that speaks a lot about what you're doing. And he was saying it just as the personnel side, I think. And there may have been more, but that was really just the feel he was getting. What I realized is by stressing the humane treatment of the animals and that sense of reverence and all, is it was very much translating to how we're treating the employees. And how they treat each other, and I how suspect. they treat each other, yeah. right. It was this sense of we have a higher purpose mm-hmm. and what we're doing is special. Mm-hmm. And, and they were being honored for being skilled butchers and the whole animal. That's what They talked to me a lot about, you didn't make me do one thing all day, mm-hmm. but I got to deal with the whole animal. I did a mm-hmm. lot of cross training. Mm-hmm. But there was very much this thing of if we're going to treat the animals this way, that's how we're treating our people. Mm-hmm. And what I see is this, the antithesis holds as well, the opposite holds. When you treat the animals like an assembly line as a production unit, what you call it, or a meat a unit, unit, a protein unit, yes. coming through and very That's much an assembly line. what the calls them, protein units. Yeah. And you're in these systems that are all with the high-speed chains, and so everybody has one job where they do one cut all day long, and it's this machine that is setting the speed. They become fungible. Mm-hmm. They become replaceable very easily because it's a very low-skill factory job, mm-hmm. and they are a problem. They, they become on the, uh, they're a part of the cost of running the business and not part of the assets. Right. You did help, uh, did you do halal and we did, kosher? So this is, yeah, we did a lot of halal uh, and kept trying. We're, we're running into the problem there of the higher cost of our sy- system of production and running into halal systems kind of Chicago that are mm-hmm. more industrialized. Mm-hmm. And so, so we, had, we had local groups trying, but they just, they couldn't, and I couldn't do that marketing mm-hmm. and they just couldn't pull off the higher cost. Mm-hmm. Um, people always talk about great opportunity there. I just haven't been able to, mm-hmm. I was never able to connect that. We had kosher folks come through. Now this is, for me, it was very interesting because philosophically, I mean, the halal and the kosher were very much in line with what we're doing with the, the spiritual purpose and being, mm-hmm. saying the prayer yeah, before. Yeah, that's and all. why I brought it up. Uh, we had... People trying to do small sale kosher because the kosher, very much like we're talking about with the organic for has become very rules heavy. And so it's really concentrated in two or three giant plants that do almost all the kosher. So people are trying to figure out how to do small scale kosher, but there you have very large vats of salt you have to do. It's, it's even more cumbersome than just small scale otherwise. The biggest issue I had, even though the USDA had to hold their hands up, is they don't allow the captive bolt gun. They want the whole thing done with the knife. Mm, mm-hmm. And when my, and I t- went around around with these folks and did a lot of research with it, but you know, when the knife as the method of death under kosher mm-hmm. was created, the alternative was smashing him in the head with a sledgehammer. Right. And so, or, or stabbing him in the heart was mm-hmm. the other one, I guess. Um, so those were very long, painful deaths with lots of opportunity, whereas slitting right. the throat was relatively painless and fairly quick death. Mm-hmm. But you still have this window of time where the animal knows what's happening. Right, that brain's right. still going. Right. And yet you can't, when you're dealing with a religious box. A right, religious you thing, can't go out of the you box. You can't go outside of the box, yeah. even though the reason for it has shifted. Right. 
and that you know that's you know modern life and science and all that mm-hmm. conflicts with two thousand three thousand right. years of tradition. Right. So we we had a uh, we were never able to really come to terms mm-hmm. on that because I insist on the humane yeah. treatment, yeah. and that just that yeah. never crossed over. You but know, the, but again, the... that concept though is sound. Where small scale when you can. Mm-hmm. accommodate people coming in as long as they share in the risk and the the cost of it. So you, again, this, this perspective of scale. So I, my guess is that people, um, would, when they're thinking about a small scale slaughterhouse, they don't, they didn't realize exactly how many animals that is. Right. Um, do you think you needed to have that many animals given your business model to break even? Um, the problem with small scale facilities is you have, and we looked at building a brand new one of the same size and it was $1.3 to $1.8 million to put it on the ground. To do a, to replicate it at that scale. And we had put in, I think about a million dollars. So the buying and the refurbishing, a million, million two. So Mm -hmm. it it wasn't far off where we were. And that is a lot of base costs to cover. Yeah. Uh, and then your employee in that kind of system, it's all human driven um, by design. And you can get a much better design for efficiency. But in essence, you come down to X butchers equal X animals. Right. And right. when you, you and you have a minimum of I think we figured out our absolute minimum was probably six employees um, to do a slaughter that could then process most of the rest of the week. Uh, but then you have admin and management and you know it adds up quickly but six butchers um so there's a fairly linear uh increase between number of butchers and number of animals um it isn't like a industrial system where you get tremendous economies of scale that's right and that is what i reminded people again i had a couple really big accounts come to me and they said we want to buy mm-hmm. all this organic or all this mm-hmm. grass-fed. If I buy more, won't it be so much cheaper? Right. And I kept saying, no, it's just the opposite. If you're buying more, right. I think one was sausage. It was a pizza mm-hmm. sausage. If you buy that much more, you have exhausted the supply I have. I have to go outside that supply. Mm-hmm. And more of the value cuts, the tenderloins and mm-hmm. ribeyes or whatever, have to go into the product. Mm-hmm. So your costs will actually increase. Mm-hmm. And they could not get their head around it. They're so used to fighting over right. pennies by volume. And I'm like, right. literally the opposite. Uh, and that's a scale thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have any restaurant chain of a size that demands so much, mm-hmm. it becomes a problem finding the sourcing. Um, and, and that's one. We had uh, an early account with Costco uh, doing organic. So I think we had three weeks of slaughter with them. That's why we went through our first round of third-party audits. Uh, the end of the day, we lost that account because we never could get the main buyer from Costco to fly to Madison, Wisconsin, <laughs> or let alone Black Earth. <laughs> right. And his thing was, I will never buy from a plant where that I can't, can't visit. can't go visit. Yep. And he was the guy for yeah. all of Costco and for him to yeah. get to us. And this is another issue in just entrepreneurial in totally Madison. Totally. It's like well, he, he's yeah. used to be able to bop in and out in a day. Mm-hmm. And instead, it was going to turn into a three-day trip. And he's like, I can't do that. It sounds like high tech where you can't get the yeah. VC people to come here. Yeah. Yeah, same thing. But we had a, uh, finally we were passing, uh, when we got to all those numbers, what we'd figured out is we our choke points were the distribution mm-hmm. and how much finish cutting we could do in the shop. Um, and so we'd worked out two large contracts, one with a group out of 
Illinois that was doing prime beef, like mm-hmm. real, and nothing, I mean, it was, as you, as you were saying, chemical laden, but they were all about that USDA prime. prime so we'd set right. it up where we could have grading. We had these guys come through and they were just, I mean, crazy fat because that's what prime is. Um, but they needed it as primals. Mm-hmm. And so we had a system where we'd come in, we'd do the slaughter, we'd age them the minimum time we could age them uh, to cool down, and then we'd get it off to them because mm-hmm. they needed that slaughter facility to take care of their animals. Right. And we had that, and we had a grass-fed contract where we were doing, actually doing the supply, we were doing between 60 and 120 a week, again, slaughter and split, mm-hmm. where they needed a slaughter facility that hit mm-hmm. federal standards and humane handling and all um, to get off to those guys. And that was the kind of balance where this, if you go back to our discussion of the cheese plant, if you're doing a production facility, if you're doing a factory, a plant, whatever we want to call them, you need a certain drumbeat of business right, to that's cover that. Right, consistent. That's that consistent. Covers up the overhead, and it doesn't have to be a huge it. profit margin, but mm-hmm. as long as you're eating up your when base cost. When you're cost, full, you make money when you right. manufacture. And I always say it's like, you know, if you can get 60% of the way and break even, and then do your own stuff on top and make profit, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And even if it's 80%, but mm-hmm. whatever it's you, until you get to that break-even point with something you can trust, it is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And so when I work with people on trying to start production facilities, it's all about lining up that throughput. Mm-hmm. And that build it, you, it, they will come is terrifying. What did you do with Terra's Way? How did you get, did you have that set up in oh, advance? totally, yeah. And, and actually, we we built that plant was a fourteen million dollar plant, so we had even more risk. And um, um, we designed that so that it would hit that break even with no brand at all. Uh, just and that actually in the way business, that's the norm of the way business yeah. anyway. So it, um, we were the only plant, as far as I know, um, it's probably still true that was a way plant that actually had its own brand. Right. It's typically just a, a, a um, private label kind of business. Right. Yeah. Well, that's but that's absolutely critical yeah. for these businesses. So well, that was so a difference. Your, to so your scale, though, right. this this larger scale you were at, right. larger not large compared to the industrial meat business, but that that was. It sounds like you could break even at that scale right. if you had those account those bigger right. reliable accounts. Right. And then you had a retail store in Black Earth. Right. That what always surprised me is I'd come out to see you in Black mm-hmm. Earth, and there were actually people shopping at this little retail store in Black Earth, and they were coming from all over the place. Yeah, we had people from Milwaukee and Chicago come every week. I mean, it was, when you it offer something, they, they can't get what you offer, and they, they're committed to getting it. And by having a retail store, they don't have to buy the whole cow. Right. They don't, I mean, they don't have to get to that quantity. They can right. just say, I just, they'll come with two or three coolers and fill mm-hmm. up. And there it was... By offering a retail outlet there, and we had you know pretty strong business coming through it, it really let us work on our utilization. Mm-hmm. We didn't have to put anything in the counter we didn't choose to. Mm-hmm. So I, one of the first things I did is when I took over, they had the retail store there, but he would, I kept seeing these um, invoices from uh, the local meat distributor. I'm like, what are these? And they're like, oh, that's for the retail counter. I'm like, you're slaughtering beef in the back and you're buying meat from someone else to put in the counter I said, beyond just kind of the silliness of that, um, on an economic standpoint, mm-hmm. you know, not feeding yourselves, um, all the people buying here think they're buying local meat. They're not, otherwise, they're buying the same stuff they could get at any grocery store. Right. And so that was the first thing we switched over. And that just started this trend of people mm-hmm. knowing 
animals walking in the back and they're able to buy it in the counter up front. And then, so if we didn't have tenderloins left over because they went to a restaurant, we wouldn't have tenderloin in the counter. Right. And so we're able to, so with an animal, it's carcass utilization is the whole thing. So there are, you know, call it 30 saleable cuts before you get into sausages and all Mm -hmm. that uh, on a beef and and fewer on on a hog. But, and the key is to get out of the tenderloin, ribeye, sirloin, ground beef trap. That's what everybody in the U.S. knows. That's maybe a New York strip. I mean, it's, it's, mm-hmm. that's it. So that's what they go and they look for all the time. And then there are all these other things, these roasts, these, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, kebab meat or a little, you know, it's like, well, what about flank steak and skirt steak and all these other things you can sell at value. And every time you sell one of those at value, you're not putting in the ground beef, which is A, you need a lot of mm-hmm. to move, and B, is it your lowest price thing. And that's where our retail case, we really learned about the utilization, capturing the maximum value. Now you get into interesting things. You have a restaurant that says, I really want to use you guys. Mm-hmm. I want a case of tenderloin. And you actually can supply the case of tenderloin. They say, yeah, but I need it at, I don't know, call it $16 a pound. You're like, huh. Or I could sell all of it myself at $30 a pound out of my case. Right. You know, but you want the name out in Madison, mm-hmm. but, you know, so you start playing those kind of utilization games, like mm-hmm. where, you know, it's it's a different way of looking at what you're doing and how mm-hmm. it's getting through. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a friend, Paul Willis, who was one of the founders of, of Nyman Ranch Meats, and he, he and Bill would, uh, told me um, in separate occasions that the way that they would make money is on all the stuff that nobody thinks about. So like, like what do you do with the rendered, with the fat? What do you right. do with the bones? Is that, was that the case with black earth meats as well? Um, not, not really. We didn't have the facility to do those things. What we had was enough volume to come through that we could go to a restaurant and say, we can offer you brisket, for mm-hmm. example. A lot of people started getting into brisket, but again, one brisket per animal. Right. And so if you're a farmer, you just can't cater right. to it. But we had a, a restaurant down in Chicago, I think it was, that really wanted to do local mm-hmm. brisket. And so when we're doing one or two animals, brisket often ended up in the grind. Mm-hmm. Instead, we're selling it on our, call it, you know, $5 a pound, $6, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. But, you know, we're making a s- several dollar premium per animal on a 12-pound or 14-pound brisket coming through because we could actually supply these guys. Mm-hmm. Now... That that's so that kind of utilization work. Now the problem would come is you have let's say, call it flank steak, mm-hmm. and we have so if we're doing thirty animals a week for our own markets, mm-hmm. I have sixty flank steaks. Each one's maybe a pound. One restaurant says I really want this, and you say okay, and they start with a you know ten pounds, and a runner's a special and it hits. I'm like oh that's the best thing ever. They say okay everybody wants the flank uh, wants this now. They say flank steaks hurts whatever it was. Everybody wants this product now. Right. And so they put it on the regular menu. Now they need 100 pounds. Right. And you're like, I don't have it. And they're right. like, well, I put it on there. And it says black earth milk. What am I supposed to do? And you're like, I don't know. <laughs> and that's, again, the, sometimes with the restaurants, boy, whew, restaurants are tough. But, you know, they, they well, want to do for, right. Yeah, it's hard for them to take things on and off their menus. Right. There's all kinds of issues well, for it, them, and, too. And yeah. it's only as good as the what they get the best menu in the world, fully utilizing an animal. But if people just keep coming in and saying, I, I just want we the just, tenderloin. They don't order the other... Yeah. It's like you're Because they stuck. don't like the Brussels sprouts that are with it or that's whatever. Right. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, that's one of the, or, or it hit, one thing hits and becomes mm-hmm. the signature dish. Right. 
and, and you just can't. I mean, that's that's a problem on on that end. Again, that's a consumer mm-hmm. thing. I, I, I've been asked a bunch of times with folks like, uh, okay, if I'm trying to be good, sustainable, you know, buyer for meat, you know, which cut is the best to go get? Mm-hmm. And my answer is, you find a whole animal butcher and you ask them, what do you have? Right. What do you need to move? Yeah, good point. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, don't go in with preconceived notions. Go in and just say, what do you got what that's going to be cool in this kind of range? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so all of that is a very long way to come back to the grandpa's way gave us our aggregation brand. Like this is a mm-hmm. base level of quality that is an aggregate. It's mm-hmm. not any one farmer but we can trace it to where it comes from and tell you about it. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to say it's grass-fed. We're not going to say it's organic. I have sold grass-fed, or I've sold you know, grass-fed organic as Grandpa's Way because that was the demand. Mm-hmm. Even though I'd paid higher for the animals, but right. it was part of this aggregation system. And that worked great because most of the restaurants don't need grass-fed. They don't need organic. They just or need they to say... The price point in the restaurant right. won't tolerate so you, so it. So you give them that. And so because I was coming at this from the idea of a production facility... It wasn't maximizing the retail or the wholesale mm-hmm. value as much as getting the throughput. My mm-hmm. model was based on so many dollars an animal coming mm-hmm. in and out. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't right. sit on and inventory. Then profit, you build profitability That's after right. that. That's yeah. Right. Yeah, and and that once we got into that model, it started working great. Yeah. And that's that's that whole chicken and egg thing. Right. But so you went on to develop conscious carnivore, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, but um, I know that you went through an exercise, which was how many retail outlets would it take to, for you as a slaughter facility to only slaughter and sell through your own retail outlets? Yeah, that was shockingly small. Was um, it? Is six. Six? Six stores would stores. support the store we had. Interesting. Now, it could go up to 20 stores mm-hmm. um, or possibly even a little higher if you had sub-production you know, production facilities. But again, it's the... <laughs> quality of the employees, you know, basically the system. Oh, yeah, no, there's a whole bunch of things you know, underlying but was, that. But the economic model was right. such that you, it would take six stores. And six stores, in, I'm assuming in a fairly big, the, each store was in a, a big enough market so that there was there was some decent sell-through within each one of those, right? Or Not really. No. Um, when you're able to capture the chain... Um, yeah, because you're getting the margin you're getting, then. You're getting all the margin the way all the way consumer. through, and even if you are selling to each store individually, but they're committed to you, mm-hmm. you know your your risk is low, and that's mm-hmm. where I said you get to literally you probably have six employees mm-hmm. who do the this is the old school thing you do you know slaughter on Tuesday, right, and then they cut everything through the week and then deliver mm-hmm. it, and one guy plays the manager hat and one right. guy plays the delivery hat, and they're just. They're doing right. everything themselves. I mean, you can scale so it down that way. So you can scale down the, yeah. And that's the small, and that's what, the, the lesson that came to me out of Black Earth Meats uh, mm-hmm. was what I call human scale. And, and that's multifaceted. But basically it's, if you go back to your systems, once you create a mechanized system where the machines define the system mm-hmm. and they, they, all the big plants, you know, 2000 to 12,000, however big the beef plant are, are now, they don't talk about how many beef a day can you handle. They say, what is your chain speed? Is it one animal every two seconds? Mm-hmm. One every 10 seconds? You know, it's all divided. You know, it's, a, it's an assembly line. Mm-hmm. And you go look at these things, and they may have you know, 80 people on the kill floor, each literally doing one cut as right. the machine comes past them. It, 
is a fabulous, high-speed, efficient system where the employees are just cogs in the wheel and have very little value they're adding uh, and, don't, and, and know it. I mean, and they don't feel good about it. And there's very little resiliency. If anything goes wrong in there, the whole right, thing. Right, the whole chain they, stops. They, they have problems. Literally, they have the thing, you know, stop the chain. Stop the is chain. This, is yeah. the last thing you ever say. Inspectors, mm -hmm. they may have eight to 18 inspectors in some of these shops. Mm -hmm. And if one of them sees a problem, first of all, with the speed, mm -hmm. by the time they can try to connect that to an animal, that animal's long gone. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to, if they stop the chain, they have the lawyer from D.C. on the phone in five minutes screaming at them because... It's costing them, you know, $10,000 a minute or whatever right. it is. So, I mean, it's this incredible thing they have created around this. And again, we're talking about the taking of life. Right. So this is why people hide these things, because you can't put your brain there because it's too horrific. Right. Instead, if you have this smaller scale where each butcher is moving in a zone and they work as a team, mm -hmm. it's not as efficient as far as pure numbers to the day, but... We came pretty darn close to doing the cost economics of a mid-sized plant. Mm -hmm. uh, the biggest difference we had was the value of the waste. Mm -hmm. We got no value for our general waste, where they can get a lot, and our hides right. were one quarter of the price the big plants could get, right. and that's all transportation distribution models. Right. Um, one of the examples I give on that is I got a call from someone from China who'd heard about us, actually mm -hmm. a guy in San Francisco working with China, and really wanted uh, the hog forelock. Mm -hmm. the front leg, which we don't, we literally throw away throw here in the away, U.S. Right. And it's a huge barbecue delicacy there. And mm -hmm. he's like, I really want it. We'll pay you more for it. And I was like, great. And so I started researching. I said, well, how much do you need? And he said, oh, we'll start small. We'll start with a container a, a month. Container a month. A container yeah. a month is 40,000 pounds. <laughs> and this is one pound. So you're talking right. the minimum of 20,000 hogs, hogs a week a to week. fill his starting small order. Right. I mean, the scale is just, I mean, not even Not even remotely close. Where close. I talked to some folks at one of the big plants who I had an in with. And, uh, you know, they're going to let me broker it for a quarter penny. But it's like, well. So here these guys are. They have an entire desk right. just selling these things. That's all they do is right. sell to China the four right. locks of hogs. The four locks of hogs. And so that's the, that's the that industrial model ferrets out every value across the mm -hmm. way, and yet the people and all that inside, mm -hmm. it's all part of the machine. Right. So that was the big thing. So this, the importance for me was the right scale where humans count. Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, we celebrate our chefs for the amazing things they put out, and yet we ignore everything. Mm -hmm. And then we get to the farmer and maybe we get a little, you know. Yeah, we have celebrity oh, here's farmers farmer. here too. But, but all the craftspeople in the so, middle. And so yeah. especially something like this. So I came to call my, my butchers the high priests of food because mm -hmm. they're the ones who take life. They take that scary mm -hmm. thing on, on their own shoulders and their own psyche mm -hmm. for the benefit of everyone else. And the consumers and the chefs, they love it because they know we've done it well. Mm -hmm. And so they, they get absolution. Like, oh, this was done well. What I'm buying is great. Because these guys did. So I brought the butcher into the middle of the story, um, which is a big part of that whole thing. And then with the human scale was the utilization. At a certain scale, you can work to utilize every aspect of the animal. Mm -hmm. When you get to higher scale, until you get to the industrial model where it's just pieces that you scatter, like I just described, it's far too hard. It's mm -hmm. just you're going where the markets are and it rises Hoping and falls. Hoping you can grind up what's left. The first retail store we did, the Conscious Carnivore, was very much uh, a natural progression, but this frustration of we had our little place that was highly sought after in Black Earth, but 
It was in Black Earth. It was in Black Earth, which is 18 miles west of Madison, which might as well have been on Mars. Right. So you every, to go there was an expedition. Mm-hmm. It was a big thing, which meant when it's wintertime, no one goes. Right. Or they're cruising by in summer on their motorcycle and they get one little thing. So right. there's a lot more to be done. So we found a place in Madison to move into, <clears throat> but it was on this idea of connecting farm to the slaughter facility to this where we're doing the full animal butchery right there mm-hmm. so even now we still have the full glass wall of the carcasses hanging behind it and train butchers who break it down right there are you in bringing storm. whole animals in there or yeah. you are we okay. are not, not live not, animal, not no, of course, slaughter but not, the carcasses yeah, but it's a whole it's not primals you're we do both in. so okay. we have the the hanging carcasses and we bring in, in primals, primals. Okay. just based on the the size of the crew there mm-hmm. but that lets us have that same control over utilization mm-hmm. right there in store uh to make different things at different mm-hmm. times depending on what's in-house and to have that direct connection to the consumer because mm-hmm. like we talked about with the cheese labels one of the problems you have is we have this huge backstory about what we're doing as black earth meats and it ends up on someone's menu meat from black earth meats i know and and the story is in getting communicated right which all. but for the restaurant yeah. of course i mean they're just trying yeah, yeah. to no, and that's they a big have barely deal, a room you know it's kind of their equivalent their yeah. their menu is the equivalent of a label on cheese right yeah. they don't have a lot of room to explain anything right and and nor do i mean you get tired of it i mean there there's one notorious <laughs> celebrated restaurant in town where Every single menu item has a paragraph about the right. sourcing. Right. And you're like, and, and the, the and waiter the will cons- come and give you a five minute spiel, and you're like, okay, Enough. I get it. Can I, I have it. some gnocchi? Or whatever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I just want to eat <laughs> I now. I just want to eat. Um, so that's one of those tensions. So by having the retail store, we suddenly had our own flagship. We could control the story, we had our direct partnership with consumers. So now other restaurants, we had a relationship. And so we weren't a restaurant. So we could say, oh, go there to get this kind of meat. But, you know, it it was just a very nice balance and parallel with everything. Sure, sure. And then when Black Earth was closed um, through uh, awkwardness with the village, and we'll there's a whole litigation and nastiness around that. But Mm -hmm. basically, if you want to boil it down is uh, it was NIMBY personified. I mean, it was... You are a slaughterhouse in the middle of a village. Mm-hmm. And yes, you've been here for 100 years or since 1930 mm-hmm. or whatever it was, but we don't want you here anymore. Right. So. And, and I, I think that that is something that everybody needs to think about when they're thinking about um, trying to bring back uh, small-scale processing mm-hmm. in other parts of the country where right. you haven't had anything for a while. Like, at least in oh. Wisconsin, people do still hunt deer, and they right. do still, you know, we're kind of around this a little bit, and you had trouble, right? right. Just think about putting that in another oh, yeah. situation where people are even further um, right. Yeah, further so away from it. When, it's difficult for people. When we had hit our peak, we had a lot of national attention from the documentary. There's a documentary, The Zen Butcher, that walks yeah. through all this. Uh, it's on Vimeo, okay, if anybody wants good. to look it up. But it was a cool little uh, thing, just really talking about the philosophy and what we're trying to do. Um, it was clear we had to expand. Right. And I was, I was really working on what is the peak size for this human scale. Mm-hmm. And what I figured out was 21 people on the kill floor. So there's a, a thing they developed actually in the military where seven people plus or minus two is the natural size of a group of people working together. Hmm. Above that, you start getting into this whole hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And, um, but seven people, you have basically your sergeant and your right. six and your folks. Clip, and, yeah. and I created this thing with seven or three teams of seven working in 
groupings. So mm-hmm. you have the, the kind of the slaughter first breakdown mm-hmm. grouping, then you have the, the um, evisceration kind of grouping, mm-hmm. and then the final clean grouping. And I, I think we, with that team, we figured we could do 200 head a day mm-hmm. um, with no mechanization. Right. Everything gravity fed and dropping through. And so it was a, you know, like your $17 million plan. It was relatively low cost for what it for was. Because we didn't have all the nation. But it's still a lot going through. So that's, and that was at a scale where. Was that your $1.8 million plan? No, that was a $17 million plan. $17 million plan. But that's where now you hit a scale where you can sell off the hog forelock and you can sell off um, the the hides that are priced. So the economics changed dramatically, but Mm -hmm. it's still in this human scale. So it's very exciting that way. But when I was designing this with the uh, engineers and architects uh, who were working with me on this, uh, we had two models. One was the greenfield outside a city, town, whatever that would have an employee mm-hmm. base where you could handle all the waste management right. through a process, but it had to be away, not by residences. Um, but at some point, I didn't want in the middle of nowhere, but is mm-hmm. you know, is that idea of like we're starting from scratch and mm-hmm. screening all this. The other one is you could do the same model inside the abandoned warehouses you find in older cities. Mm-hmm. So we all, you know, Down in Memphis, where I was raised, right outside us is this old World War II factory that has been there since I was born, just Mm -hmm. falling to pieces. No one uses it. It's just, but you have this infrastructure still sitting there. And all you need is a roof. And then you put everything underneath, including where the animals come out and all that. Mm -hmm. All the waste management can handle inside, Mm -hmm. away from there. And that way you get a a human-driven job factory with the farmers be able to bring stuff in, again, through the highways, so it's an old industrial model, and yet people aren't offended by the smells of the sites or whatever is going on, you tuck inside. So that, for me, is having that concept of what is it, plant in a box kind of thing, where we can either be greenfield or we can go into the inner city mm-hmm. where the old buildings are, that, that has a lot of appeal. And that's where I think we can push that forward. Yeah, so... Um, it was interesting when I was citing my plant. Now, I did a whey protein plant. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who've ever seen one, you would you, it's liquid going in. It's completely internal. And I had communities, I'd, I'd have to appear in public hearings, and people would be afraid of having the whey plant there because... Um, they thought it would smell, and whey doesn't smell, but I don't know. They're bringing that from other experiences mm-hmm. with factories, right? They don't actually want tanker trucks coming through their town, right. and I needed 17 of them a day. And um, and so it is really interesting because people say they want manufacturing back, and they say they want jobs because these are good jobs and good-paying jobs, mm-hmm. but they don't want these other things that are associated with manufacturing. And I, right. I built like a state-of-the-art green manufacturing facility. You know, it was like LEED certified. I mean, it, it, you could not imagine a cleaner facility. And people didn't want it in their town. That's right. It's, it's an interesting thing. Like if we really want to create a new food system, we part of this, we got to get people like used to dealing with things like, yeah, it involves killing animals, but it's also, it involves kind of trucks and manufacturing right. and, you know, fat goes out the back end and blood goes out and, you That's know, right. it's part of what this. Our whole problem in Blackers started when we had, I can't remember, 12 employees and the parking became a problem. Right. 
and then all of a sudden the, the street was getting clogged up a little bit. And then, and that started this whole cascade that ended up with us getting kicked out of town. Yeah. So it, I'm glad you raised that with the trucks and all that. It, these, the small towns, mm-hmm. they want the jobs, mm-hmm. but they don't want anything that goes with the jobs. Right. And, and you know, big cities are like that, too. Uh, absolutely. I mean, Madison, you can't even rehab a building in Madison right. without running into stuff. So. It's, well, everybody's, it's the, the nuisance value of everything. It's like they don't, no, no lights, no sounds, no, no, I want quiet enjoyment of my residence. Mm-hmm. And then, because, and part of that is we're so used to commuting. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes me 30 minutes to get downtown as a, as a lawyer. Okay, well, that's, you know, I have a nice car, thank goodness. But it's like, that is an hour of my day. Right, spending a car. Spending a car Crazy. where, you know, back in the days, they'd say, I'd walk across the street mm-hmm. or walk, you know, three blocks away to go work mm-hmm. at whatever local shop. But that is our entire system has really shifted away from this towards this highly industrialized model that can churn out all kinds of products that get scattered through mm-hmm. The country, and so we're just used to going to the local grocery right. store and having it all right there. Right, and there's something. Um, there's something we lost something significant when we lost Black Earth Meats, and it, it and it isn't just the, you know, yes, we can get we can get the meat and we can get it processed in other places and that sort of thing, but but this the kind of spiritual reverential aspect right. of what you created is not getting recreated somewhere else. That's right. And that's that's really sad because I think you're on to something about yep. the human scale and the treatment of of you know biological life-giving right. systems, right? That's part of the name of the conscious carnivore mm-hmm. is to reflect our education mission and conscious as in wake up. Mm-hmm. A lot of people misread it or mishear it as conscientious, like, oh, oh we're the right. good... It's like we're right. deliberately not trying to say we're doing better, mm-hmm. although we obviously believe we are, mm-hmm. but it's wake up. Mm-hmm. So what I always say is if people can go through my lectures and learn about the modern ag system mm-hmm. and learn about how meat are handled, the people are handled, and still choose to eat at fast food restaurant or sure. get the cheapest stuff off the, the shelf and feel good about it, that's their deal. Right. As long as they know about it. Right. Exactly. They're making a conscious choice about I don't. It. That's what bothers me is that throughout our mm-hmm. society through this fungible nature of food that's mm-hmm. drilled into us and more for less is better. And it, we have really disengaged us from what life is and what is important and our role in it. We're just kind of going through as drones and working with whatever immediate mm-hmm. things around us. So what I'm doing since the close of Black Earth is we're focusing on conscious carnivore, we're trying to open mm-hmm. more of them up. And now it's the whole investor class mm-hmm. and getting those folks in. But um, but really creating community and creating community around food. And that's what mm-hmm. the Conscious Carnivore is about. Everyone who works there is highly uh, culinary aligned. Mm-hmm. You know, some are professional chefs, some are not. And, or, you know, obviously the highly skilled butchers and we're training new butchers. But it's not only do you come in and supposedly feel better about the meat, you learn about meat. Mm-hmm. You learn how to cook it. Because if you're going to drop 10, 20, 30 bucks on something to feed someone, you don't want to ruin it. And everybody's petrified of meat. So it's mm-hmm. like... Everybody chill out. We're going to get you through this, get you some skills. You'll be fine. And so that interaction mm-hmm. with our customers has created this sense of a shop that is very different from any shop I've been in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just the nice people and, hey, how's it going? When you walk in, the first thing you do is you, you have to wipe your feet, whether it's, I mean, especially now, you know, but wet, right, whatever. Right. And we have a big 
big format that when you wipe your feet, you, know, you, know, you look down and it says, um, let's all slow down and eat good food. Mm-hmm. And it's my pay on to slow food, which is everybody mm-hmm. just, and I do it with the feet as a ground, grounding mm-hmm. method from my meditation. I'll like, everybody just settle. Mm-hmm. And that supposedly sets the tone for the whole shopping where it's settled. You know, we play nice music. I mean, they, and the guys choose, you know, what they want, but it's not crazy mm-hmm. rock. It's supposedly, mm-hmm. you know, mellow, light jazz, kind of like Ella Fitzgerald. We, and mm-hmm. we love our music. And so it's just to have a nice atmosphere, but just settle down. We have a big kitchen table there where people are supposed to have a beer or coffee in a butcher shop. But it's like, settle down. We can have a conversation. You see everything. And what's interesting is on the left wall, when you walk in, there's a little cubby. And there's a saying somebody pulled from one of my speeches that said, uh, let's eat like we're all connected. Mm -hmm. And obviously in our conversation, you've heard that time and time again as this connection of stuff. And it, it literally wouldn't stick on the wall. Like when they, you know, it was newly painted, newly, re- and so they had a sticker and it wouldn't stick on the wall. So the printer said, well, you know, I've got this plexiglass thing that's kind of stuck out an inch. Why don't we stick that on there? I'm like, all right, well, we got to get it up there. It's this mm-hmm. blank wall. So he put it up there. And as soon as I saw it, I had this vision of pictures. Mm-hmm. So we created a little sign that said, I'm connected. And so people would come in and we started with our banker and the workers and the electricians and friends and family. And they would just say, I'm connected by, I'm one of the, one of your butchers or I'm the electrician or I did your flooring mm-hmm. and, and, and like my bankers in the middle, cause we couldn't do anything without my banker. Right? right. And so we had the first circle of just showing what literally took to get the door open. And there are, you know, 12, 14, 16 pictures there. And, and that was a selection. And then customers would come and say, well, can I do that? And so they'd write, I like good meat, or, you know, I think one guy put PETA, people eating tasty animals, or <laughs> whatever it was that drew yeah. them in, right? And so they, they sign it up, and they'd get their picture, and we'd put it up on the, on the board until it filled the whole wall. Now we don't know what to do because the, the wall's filled. The wall but is full. in six months, we went from a blank wall to showing what one shop focused on community does, mm-hmm. tying all these people together. And it was just an extraordinary event. Now, when Black Earth was going through our nightmare there, and it was first hitting the news that they were mm-hmm. shutting us down and all the horrors that were th- are, um, underway, um, I was pretty much holed up with the lawyers and uh, feeling embattled and miserable and you know mm-hmm. ev- my entire life and savings, everything looking down into the abyss. And customers started coming by the shop, and they were using that connected board to write messages to me. Mm. And, boy, I'm getting all teary now. I mean, it was the most incredible thing I'd ever mm. seen. I mean, it's, it's like those cancer things you see people, sure. but people just coming in just because the shop meant so much to them mm-hmm. that they were sending this message of support to us. And right. so that is very much the feeling we are trying to continue with the conscious carnivore of, hey, we're in this together. Mm-hmm. So beyond the conscious carnivore, my mission is now constantly reminding people about human scale and mm-hmm. about community. Because mm-hmm. we don't have that base community anymore. Mm-hmm. You, you get a little bit through your church. I say the strongest place we have it now is our public schools. Mm-hmm. But outside, it has to be a very intentional act to create community because it doesn't exist naturally anymore. And it is hard. It goes against everything we're taught, everything we're trained in this society and our libertarian natures and all that. So that's what I'm out there is to remind people everywhere you spend your dollar, that's creating the community you want to see. Every time you do something mm-hmm. nice for someone, every time you have a conversation, like-minded or otherwise, um, have a cup of coffee. I try to go for coffee five days a week with someone mm-hmm. just to have a conversation. It's reconnecting people and getting people to slow down and think about how their everyday actions affect everyone around them. 
uh, this time of year. I just I wrote this up for the paper. Um, we went through a list with each of our kids on who they wanted to give cards, presents, mm -hmm. chocolates to. Mm -hmm. And I think we had over 20 people for each kid that helped them in their life. And these are people they came up with, you know, a little bit of prompting, but you know, music teachers, uh, like the specialists at the school, mm -hmm. the bus driver, the um, people at the corner who just, you know, help them get on the bus one day or whatever, just all these people in their lives. And they're just thinking about the immediate impact, mm -hmm. not the next level of the school administrators or the people who check us out at the grocery store, or even stock the shelves. Or So many people are out there working lower paid or well paid or it's their profession or it's just their avocation, whatever it is, to make one individual life work. Mm -hmm. And yet we're trained to ignore all that. Right. And when I shop at Conscious Carnivore, one of the things that, um, you know, partly because I, I have the I have the memory of Black Earth Meats, but um, in that just the connections, that community and knowing the knowing that you know where the meat is coming from. I, some of your owners are farmers, right? Our right. farmers. So, so there's this this direct economic connection to the farmers, and then the then the people who live there are coming in to buy food, right? And right. and the people who work there, they they too are part owners, correct? That's right. Yeah. So there is this incredible economic community that you have created around Conscious Carnivore that right. is around good meat and good agriculture and good food that is really significant. And I, you know, I, I think, I think stores and businesses have, en have an energy around them. Yep. And there is definitely a very, that kind of what the Willie Street buyers observed in Black Earth Meats, you know, right. you can feel that in Conscious Carnivore getting played out in a different way. Right. Um, how, how much did it cost you to, um, to open that store? I think all in is about three fifty. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a, because you have Doable. like you have a rail in there, right? So, yeah, that was yeah. There's some yeah, infrastructure in, intensive that you did. infrastructure for something. So it's yeah. There's the demolition, the rebuild, and all the equipment and all that. Anytime you're dealing with food equipment, it's. I mean, <laughs> I still go around around with some of my staff because I'm used to Black Earth Meats prices, and this is an order of magnitude less, but twice what they're used to be. You know, it's like right, right. I'm like, oh, it's only ten thousand. Okay, right. You know, and right, uh, I'm used right. to eighty thousand on a grinder. Or, right, you know, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so my, yeah, so I'm glad you, you tapped into the, the employee buy-in. That was an important part of me, or a part of what I did is to get the employees to buy in, mm -hmm. uh, and in a significant way. And it's mm -hmm. not just they get a piece of ownership, but they literally had to put their money in mm -hmm. to make this work, um, to, to get the, the literal buy-in and all mm -hmm. in the, the long-term commitment, because that is what drives a lot of this. My goal is, and it's very tricky, is to have new stores opened with community investment. So if you go into a new community, that community comes up with the money for the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And then you, basically, whether they hire us a manager or use joint venture or whatever, it's like, we've got the skills and the throughput. You guys come up with the money for the infrastructure because you say mm -hmm. you want it. And then that gives them, that gives us our immediate customers and them, they become evangelists for what we're doing. It, and it really creates a community partnership, mm -hmm. which I think my sense is it kind of probably was the model way back in the day when you'd only have the chance for one shop. Right. And some different people would kind of, it's your friends and family mm -hmm. raise. 
Um, and it's gotten lost. Now that you drop money to Coca-Cola or Pepsi or what, whatever it is. It didn't your used to are. be so easy to invest in the stock market. Right. Right. When I, when I, I remember my grandfather was, um, he was a businessman and he had more money. And so he had a stockbroker, you know, and yeah. I remember as a kid and my, my mother telling me, well, he has a stockbroker, you know, and now we all can buy ETFs, you know, right. we, it, you don't, you could get on Ameritrade and right. be a day trader. And somehow what we've lost then is the, the, that capital that was the friends and family who would invest in, you know, mm -hmm. the latest, I don't know, hardware store. And, right. Right. Well, come back to the, the sense of fungible mm -hmm. and the human scale. Right. We have been trained that we're, you need to chase that 10 to 12% return and hopefully get the hockey stick and get, you know, 100% return or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And the local thing, first of all, it's not even on your radar that you can do it. Right. And even if you can, and if you get a 6% or 8%, you're like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, that's and not you, competitive. Right. I could do better. Right. But you forget the whole, like, but now you've got your beloved hardware store in your neighborhood mm -hmm. or, you know, hopefully in our case, I've got a place I would like to shop mm -hmm. or the restaurant. Like I get to eat there. Right. And especially if you get a bunch of community people coming together, you almost are guaranteed a success very much like a mm -hmm. co-op does. Mm -hmm. Like we know we have this many customers. Mm -hmm. So we got a really strong base to build mm -hmm. off of here. That's a, it's a hard, that's again, education. I seem to do everything hard. You're always ahead yeah. of t your, oh, yeah. well, what are you ahead of yourself in yeah, a way? There you go. Yeah. But that's the, you know, trying to get that message out and finding those people. That's what we're kind of mm -hmm. going through now. But that to me creates a scenario that creates a lot of very high quality community shops, mm -hmm. but supported by a common basis mm -hmm. um, that I think has very uh, long-term potential. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, one of the struggles I'm going through now is if I get two or three stores that we self-finance or even some basic community investment and I have someone want to take it into a franchise, mm -hmm. what does that mean on the philosophical yeah, level? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I love Chipotle mm -hmm. and it's, they're all company owned, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's like our McDonald's. It's, right. I know what I'm going to get everywhere I go in the country. And it, it really changes what that offering is right. versus what that community needs. Right. And these are one of the things I'm struggling. How do you break through the chatter and the demands on this scale that is way above human scale, mm -hmm. that it's an industrial model right. through and through, including right. financial? Mm -hmm. And how do you break through that to get people back to a settled place of strength and resilience. So do you think if if you ended up with, what what did you say, six or seven mm -hmm. retail stores was enough to support a slaughterhouse? Right. Is that, would you ever do a slaughterhouse if you did that? I think in the short term, I would uh, partner mm -hmm. with other plants mm -hmm. that way. Um, I probably wouldn't think of my own slaughter plant until we actually had a some sort of strongly regional or national presence mm -hmm. and the need was there, like we were bouncing around too much. Mm -hmm. I would, I'd really want to create the one that was like the seven, mm -hmm. $17 million. Right. Because that, that to me really created the model that was much more duplicable. Mm -hmm. um, the small shops, I think, are much more dependent on the individual drive and mm -hmm. skills. Um, when you get to the larger one, you need, you still need skilled position, but you can do much more training and breaking mm -hmm. down of... Well, the pieces. and the carcass utilization that's is so going to get a lot better. Oh, the, just the difference in value in the hides alone. I mean, it's just shy. I mean, when we did the modeling on the, the bigger plant, uh, you, I, 
you could do the processing for free. Mm-hmm. If you give us everything else, we'll do the processing for free, and you come out great. Right. It's just like, it's really? great. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, and that right. changes the economic for the local farmer mm-hmm. and everybody else. Mm-hmm. So they're just, there are just uh, – there are reasons people industrialize and all that, but I, I really believe by doing so we are – losing what it means to be human mm-hmm. where we've lost our community largely and mm-hmm. it's fracturing right as we speak so that's the store is a one of my active uh, action points for trying to build community mm-hmm. and I'm doing it through schools and mm-hmm. writing and other things because when you come down to it uh, through this whole process food to me is the most dramatic example of people coming together for community you you literally come and break bread mm-hmm. and when you watch the people eating in their cars you watch the fast food and that whole dynamic you can see there is no community there it's just fuel versus the thanksgiving feast mm-hmm. or the family dinner table which that alone has largely right. gone but p- some people are fighting to bring it back the things that have been proven through science to make us happy mm-hmm. are small groups of people and eating food and doing things together with purpose and the, what science tells us what happy is what this industrial system is shattering mm-hmm. and actively trying to shatter because they're just focused on money and pieces of it. So my entire mission and everything about us is that through food, bringing back together, having people wake up and live consciously in their lives to improve community, even in tiny bits. You're actively looking at opening another conscious carnivore, right? We are right now. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So just need to, you know, figure out the financing of that mm-hmm. and so that's kind of primed and then hopefully from that we'll jump outside the Madison area to another location to prove it's not just a Madison thing but mm-hmm. somewhere else. And at that point it gets very interesting. Then you can like I said you really look at does this thing expand on a franchise model but done my way? Where mm-hmm. it's community investors come in and you're partnering with them, or is it someone who's a uh, social capitalist? Is that the right word? Social, social purpose, social impact person mm-hmm. who wants to take it kind of in the Nyman Ranch model mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. say we want to get these out there, but we're going to be very strict in how we do it. Mm-hmm. Those are uh, problems I don't have yet. Yes. Uh, <laughs> when I get there, I'll, I'll have to work through that. And that and just looking ahead, I mean, that is a philosophical problem I have to work through. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it can do a lot of good for a lot of the small shops out there that we can come in and support them mm-hmm. uh, and really get a network going of these small independent butcher shops. And that butcher shop um, is located right across the street from Whole Foods. So, right. um, so what's interesting to me about that was, number one, it's across the street and people are coming to you and not going right. presumably to Whole Foods. Um, I guess the other question is, do you think it needs to be, so that's a fairly affluent part of Madison. Do you think Conscious Carnivore would work in a less affluent neighborhood? Uh, Yes, but not in the exact same way. Okay. So one of the things we're looking at is, for our next one, is a less affluent area, Mm -hmm. is um, setting up where you do more um, pre-prepped food. And, and possibly even some cook that you go home and eat with. I'm generally opposed to that, but kind of a restaurant-like mm-hmm. kind of thing because you need to, A, cater to the people and, and their level who of business. Who are there, right? right and who yeah. are there. And by doing more of the prep, more of the cooking, 
Um, it's kind of like making your sausage. You can mm -hmm. work on your utilization and add a lot of value. Mm -hmm. And you may not capture the full margin you would otherwise get through a value chain, but you can capture enough that it makes the whole base move through. Mm -hmm. And so we've been very active in researching that, how that works to get price points. Out. But look at it this way. Like if you, like right now, it's pretty standard to go to a uh, restaurant and get burger and fries for 10 bucks. Right. I've seen them, you know, from eight fifty to twelve dollars. No one thinks twice about that anymore. Mm -hmm. And even if you get a third pound burger on there, at the conscious carnivore retail price, that's what two dollars and fifty cents, or mm -hmm. maybe even three dollars. I mean, it's like, so where's the rest of it? Right. No, it's in yeah, you know, it's in labor and prep mm -hmm. and the bun and the pickle. But it's like the actual ingredients in a restaurant are like thirty percent mm -hmm. of what the final product is. So you're like, okay, well. If I can sell a burger out of our shop for 10 bucks, I've captured all that value, but I've got all, I'm not having to buy from someone. I've already got it. Right. So it's just, it's ways to capture the value in the carcass mm -hmm. utilization to maximize your overall margins. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're looking at with uh, this next door is, is mm -hmm. how to do that in a way that really makes sense. And you, you still do this um, uh, grandpa's way and grass fed and organic distinctions in the right. store, correct? Right. Yeah. And it's, it, it's one of those, it's, it's very few people come to us insisting on organic or insisting on grass fit at this point. They want good meat. Mm -hmm. But because we create that line of sight to the mm -hmm. farmer, not, they get it and mm -hmm. they, they know that. I really think the organic in particular comes in at the bigger store mm -hmm. where it's, you know, it's the Costco's and the mm -hmm. Target's, whatever, where you're like, okay, I don't know any of this stuff and there's no way I can know it, but at right. least it's organic. right. And it gives you some level of confidence that you're stepping that up. That something or, was handled right. well. Right. If not great, at least well. That's right. And yeah. There's some improvement in the mm -hmm. system that way. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing with the, the grass-fed. Um, you know, I think Target started a big grass-fed program right, and things like that. Right. But again, it's it's kind of a funny Are they feeding them pelletized yeah, stuff? That's, yeah. That's, yeah, the last I'd heard, they were coming out of uh, basically a CAFO Mm -hmm. But instead of feeding them corn in the CAFO, they're feeding them grass cubes coming yeah. out of Canada. Right. But Pelletized it, grass. Right. Yeah. But it, it counts as grass-fed mm -hmm. that way. So, I mean, right. it's that's what I mean. Once you get to a system, a mm -hmm. high-level industrial, all the corners start getting cut mm -hmm. because that is what that system's about. Once right. you've maximized your efficiency here, then you start working on your input costs. Mm -hmm. And every quarter, I, I worked with a friend, every quarter cent they saved, it made them a million dollars. Right. It's crazy. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's one of those. Whew, wow. Yeah. Um, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about your legal work now? Sure. <laughs> then this is the last dimension of Bartlett, right? <laughs> is, is legal work. Um, so I was I was a lawyer before uh, in in Hawaii and did widespread uh, litigation on the plaintiff side. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of employment discrimination and just you know, lawsuit stuff. And then uh, really enjoyed the unfair deceptive trade practices and we did class actions and all. The problem with litigation is that you are in a fight and it is very smart people on both sides doing everything they can to bash the other's head. Right. And yet it's not your fight. Right. Right. And it's a, it's a weird it's thing. It's a weird thing. Yeah. And, and for someone like me, that's very, butcher, yeah, it I just, it's, it, I struggled with that. And the, basically it's a manufactured tension around it. But in, I was also lucky in that I worked at a firm that um, was very small but did a lot of 
broad scale work. So we got into transaction work and I remember selling like a billion dollar hotel. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, why not? You know, well, it's, it's remarkably not much different than selling a house. But right, right. Just there's a billion dollars on the right. line. Um, so I've joined a firm here uh, that does some transaction work uh, that I'm working on uh, and a little bit of litigation that I get to help out with, which is fun to mm-hmm. pitch in that way. But the, the core of it is distressed businesses. Mm-hmm. So businesses that are thinking of bankruptcy or need a reorganization or just need someone to kind of talk to the banks. And with the background I've got and the collapse of Black Earth and all the nightmares I went through, I'm able to bring my business side and my legal side together. And so when I sit down at the table with these clients who come in, it's like, I know you. I'm used to being on that side. Yeah, I got to believe that would be incredibly reassuring to people because there is, um, in in the work that I do now at the university, my joke is that people come to me after they've been losing money for three years and they can't stand it anymore. And I know the sense of relief that they, now these are not businesses that are ready to, to declare bankruptcy per se, um, but there's still this amazing sense of relief when they right. come to me and, and I say, yeah, you know, you got, we got to work on the following things. And yeah, but right. they, it isn't just this unknown, f- I'm swimming in failure thing That's right. anymore. Yeah. So the, what we get are a lot of clients who come in in that exact same situation yeah. and they come Probably to us. Worse. Well, sometimes worse, sometimes not. It's usually they've been pushed there because a bank is starting to say, oh, okay. we're right. not going to re, yeah, we're not going to renew you unless and all. And they start freaking out, and right. then and they see like, oh my gosh, if I don't, then all I've got is bankruptcy. Well, they right. come to us, and it's we do a lot like what you do is you go through balance sheets, you who are your investors, what's mm-hmm. your cash flow, and we actually work on the business. Mm-hmm. And that's again my consulting side has mm-hmm. been great for saying, where are you? Mm-hmm. And sometimes the answer is you're the Walking Dead, mm-hmm. so we're going to set you up to get you out, but mm-hmm. don't. There's no saving at this point. Right. Or what usually happens is you find ways to, you know, work with the bank, work with other lenders, um, you know, convert some equity across mm-hmm. or some loans to equity and different things and set it up for a sale or spinning mm-hmm. off certain pieces. So it's a lot of the work on the business itself in a way that they're in the weeds they can't see. Mm-hmm. And by being through it and be able to step back, go, oh, wait. You just need to do this, that, and the other, mm-hmm. and it's going to be painful, but let's figure out what you need. We can buy you time with the bank. Let's do this. So when should people talk to somebody like you? I think the first time they wake up going, how am I going to make payroll? Mm-hmm. Or, oh, that contract didn't come through. They need to see the spectrum, what's ahead of them, mm-hmm. and just kind of get... Right, because it's not magically going to get better. Right. You know, somehow people have this idea that, oh, it'll get, I don't know. We're entrepreneurs. We're constantly That's optimistic, right? right? That's right. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those that, you know, you always benefit by having some professional looking at your numbers, looking at your plans, going to talk to the bank with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, having the legal hat gives you that little bit extra. I actually have a weapon I can use. Mm-hmm. Instead of just, hey, let's all get along, it's actually like, okay, bank, we're going to get along because if we don't, I'm going to throw them into bankruptcy and you're going to get nothing, nothing for a while. for so, a long time, right. I'm going to tie you up big time. Right. So yeah. that's, you know, sometimes that will ratchet up the pressure. But, you know, uh, again, with, you know, with my personality and what I've been through, the banks all know I've been there. Let's, mm-hmm. let's work with this guy to get him out the other side mm-hmm. that I'm not just trying to throw him into bankruptcy and make a, make a dollar that way. Um, 
so that's been fun. And, and that working with uh, the grant writing I do and the, you know, the business consulting, it keeps me paid mm-hmm. and above, above water, you know, with things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm fully involved with these different food businesses and this whole uh, small business world that is so freaking hard. Mm-hmm. and deck stacked against you, but there are ways through. Mm-hmm. You just kind of need to know, what is it I told someone just the other day? Oh, yeah, I finished like a two-hour meeting with them, and I said, okay, you have to remember something. If you listen to the lawyers or you listen to the business consultants, you'll never do anything. Right. Because we're here to show you the downsides and the risks and the problems. And if it were easy and bulletproof, no one ever would have, or everybody would have done it already. So mm-hmm. it's your energy and your belief and your luck and timing that are going to push this through. So keep that in mind because mm-hmm. it's they're always depressed when you talk to you. you know, it's oh, like, yeah, especially if they're uh, getting to you. Yeah, yeah. so it's yeah. like, you know, it's okay. Yeah. And we, we get, got your dream, and yeah. we're, I'm going to try to get you there. But you hear all the hour-and-a-half-long conversation of the pitfalls. Now let's go. Right. And I get people earlier than that where where we, we work on their business model to get them to a place that sure. they can feed can potentially make money um, because a lot of people start out in ways that will never make money. Right. Um, and then then they still can run into trouble. I mean, and things happen to people, you know. Oh, yeah. Somebody gets sick or something. That's right. You know, that kind of stuff happens. So. That's when we hit, I don't know, seven, eight employees, all of a sudden I created a rule of absolute redundancy. Yeah. I mean, if, if someone's gone, oh, we can't mm-hmm. possibly lose. I said, well, just assume they're dead. Right. What right. happens? You know, the it's bus. like. Hit by the bus. Yeah. Got to, you know, got to keep moving. So mm-hmm. what do you do? And the worst feeling in the world is when you feel stuck with someone that you don't really like, but there's no redundancy there. And then you got to work around it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that, that was one of the interesting lessons I had. And I had one guy come to me. He's like, why would I train anyone? And then you're just, you know, you're out for my job. As soon as he said that, I said, "I'm out for your, your job." Job, right? Because you it's, don't have the right. You're not. You're not on the. When you were training other people, you become incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. But when you're there, just kind of secret knowledge, and I'm the only one who can do it, then you're a threat to me, and you're gone. Mm-hmm. And of course, he had no way of understanding that. But right. It's like right. as as that boss, as the owner, as a system person, mm-hmm. you can't have that critical risk anywhere in your mm-hmm. system. I mean, that's what HACCPs are for, and I mean, on the food safety side, but in the personnel side and your finance, everything else, you've got to have redundancy in there because, right. you know, one little thing, and it's a stupid thing, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden your business crashes, you're like, that doesn't work. So we've covered a lot of territory. What have we missed? We've, I think we've covered the incredible importance of it, what is, I think, forgotten in a lot of this is people think they're all in and they have to risk everything to go in. There is the model that's out there, which is you keep your day job Hmm. or you keep your consulting job or you set up certain things at the very get-go. So you can be all in for X amount of time Mm -hmm. and then you fall back. Um, You you said I I usually deal with people in the back and I deal with people on the front end who's setting up some of these things where oh, that's good to know it's there's certain things with the you know guarantees they mm-hmm. sign early on for a fifty thousand dollar loan mm-hmm. that all of a sudden blows up into a million dollar loan right. and they and they didn't realize they had guaranteed right in, ad, ad infinitum so how to secure certain basins because I, I think everybody's willing to take a risk if they have a safety net mm-hmm. but the way our society's set up mm-hmm. there's no safety net anymore mm-hmm. um you know one of the things i learned 
um, to my thing is for 10 years, I worked for the business mm-hmm. and didn't have W-2. So for 10 right. years, I'm not in the social security system. Right. Yeah. So now I'm scrambling Lovely, trying right. to pick up like, oh, wait, I was kind of counting on that. And it's like, nope, that's not there. So I've got some catching up to do that way. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, health insurance, a lot of people have the spouse, you know, and if you're a farmer, you have the spouse who works off the farm for health insurance. Mm-hmm. And how do you get those base things mm-hmm. set up? So at the front end, there is how do you commit and commit as much as you can and then some and yet understand the downside and protect the downside. Mm -hmm. And that's one no one wants to think about when they're starting because, of course, they're going to be wildly successful. But you have to go through the worst-case scenario stuff. I think it would be super valuable um, for us, and think about this, to do – to do some a training thing about okay you're going to start out this you know and it's usually about the time when you're going to get your big loan right the mm-hmm. first the first conventional financing that would be the time for people to think through a bunch right. of things that's right from a legal perspective uh, is it, to protect yeah. themselves and it it goes with your investors and other things too it's mm-hmm. you know like a lot of people will be willing to throw money at you if that's it right but when all of a sudden this, this there's is what, a, there's a capital call later, right there's yeah. there's a capital call or or like I'm dealing with a company now that had no provision for a capital call right and they're out of money and they're out and of they money. owe money and they and need they owe money. money and they need money and they have no way to get it right yeah and, and nobody's going to say yes unless they have that's to. that's right so it's I call it, that's a zombie situation and right. that happens a lot right. where they're just lurching on they're already dead but they mm-hmm. have this semblance of life and right. that is destroying a lot of people around them and it's mm-hmm. like that is ugly ugly. Ugly, ugly. So that's that's one situation you see. The other one is the investor who comes in as part of an LLC, mm-hmm. and because they're over twenty percent, they have to sign the personal right. guarantees on the they loan. On the loan for the business. And yep. everybody's like, "Oh yeah, no big deal. I'm okay. It's nope, just a pass through." Real. And all of a sudden, it's like, and then usually they're the one with the money. So the right. bank goes, "Well, why don't you just pay yeah, and go yeah. get it from your partners right. here?" Right. Exactly. So there's this. There, there are all these situations there that people have to be. They have no idea that are there. None. Right. None. And that you kind of got to think mm-hmm. through and look in the, the front end and set things up properly. Mm-hmm. And, and then you get the fun of dealing with banks in those situations. Like, look, we really need a million five, but no one's going to give you a guarantee. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, we're not giving you any money yeah, then. Then go away. I mean, I, I, um, I talk a lot to my clients about the difference between, uh, you know, like your ideal would be no guarantees, for example. You're not going to get anything out of a bank mm-hmm. if you're not willing to personally guarantee. And then there's the um, the people who say, well, I will only do a limited guarantee. And I'm like, well, that's good. That'll be great. But you probably still won't get any money. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this tension between right. what is feasible and what is legally what, what, so I have a, clients who have attorneys who say, well, don't sign that because of X. Right. Okay, you cannot just sign it, but you're not going to get a bank to do it. You right. know, what, what is legally attractive and what is financially realistic is often not the same thing. That's right. And people get really mad at banks, but they have regulators looking at them oh, totally. and they got to protect have, like, their no people. They no flexibility whatsoever. Yeah, and, and their margin is tiny. Tiny. And so if they have one go south, it wipes them out for a year or two. And it's... Long time, yeah. yeah. So there are a lot of, lot of issues. And I think... Um, I think there, it would be a wonderful opportunity to do something with you, I think, yeah. because um, there are just, especially once you're going to start raising equity or signing the big bank note, there are just lots of legal issues. That's right. It's 
It's tough that, stuff. For your own personal financial. That's right. And, and that's where, you know, yeah. early on trying to carve out certain things, it's, yeah, and you get, you know, fun with spouses and families and obligations mm-hmm. that way. And mm-hmm. it's it's all, again, it's part of it is, <laughs> come back to it, we'll close on this, I guess. It's part of that human scale in our systems. It is, yeah. Our whole system started where you wanted to do something. Our whole financial system started like, I want to go trade with China and bring back some silk. Mm-hmm. And I need today, it'd be, you know, the equivalent of $100,000. And I got a camel. <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so you and your friends right. throw it together. and you don't. So all your risk is, is that a successful mission. Mm-hmm. But other than the risk of death, everybody kind of swallows hard and moves on. Where now we've got it where that equivalent trip would be a million five. And you have to pull in really heavy hitters. And a lot of people come in and they're all going to point at you at the end of the day. And if you're the one thinking, I'm the entrepreneur starting out, you don't have that money. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. If you had the money, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be tapping into everyone. Right. And there's no, there's no universal health care. There are no safety nets to take care of entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. So you have expenses you have to pay anyway. And you're robbing Peter to pay Paul when you're starting out till you've got this thing going. So we have created a system where the entry point is really high and really scary. Or you're at a very low level of our local food going to the farmer's market trying to scrape by. But jumping from that up is almost impossible. So these are the problems we're dealing with in our local food and our better food kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and the energy it, and processing. And look at it writ large. It's not just the food economy. It's it's entrepreneurship and our rate of innovation and new yeah. new companies, startups, and we're we're in a terribly not. Uh, there's not a lot of innovation going on that's creating jobs in this country, right? right? And so, a lot of what you're talking about is, I think, a big part of the reason why we're not seeing Absolutely. what we what we need to I've, see. I've had this fight with uh, people on the far right politically who are just, you know, basically libertarian or all. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you have no idea how many more entrepreneurs and businesses we'd have if we had universal health care mm-hmm. and some sort of guaranteed retirement. Mm-hmm. Because you can risk everything during your lifetime. Right. If you can just limp along at retirement, you don't have to mm-hmm. worry about that. Right. Like, hey, at least I can live in an apartment and watch my right. TV. Right. But you have the chance to go for everything in the meantime. Right. And then that, that health care thing, how many people, mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many I've talked to who didn't do a business or dropped out of doing business because of health care. Right. Right. I get it. I get it. So that's, but that's, you know, this is the system we're in. Mm-hmm. And so I do my part trying to create mm-hmm. smaller senses of community that starts understanding the reconnection mm-hmm. to build forward together. Mm-hmm. And Conscious Carnivore is a wonderful place to go. So where, if somebody wants to go to Conscious Carnivore, where do they go? Madison, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're at uh, Shorewood Mall, which is on the north side across from Whole Foods. There's, Mm -hmm. it's a little, we call it the gourmet ghetto. So there's (laughs) Penzi Spices and there's a bakery and there's uh, Wisconsin cutleries there. There's a neat neat little Asian market. Mm -hmm. So you can get almost everything you need. Right there, but uh, you know the conscious carnivores there, and even if you don't want to shop, come check it out because it's you'll see. I always say you walk into my brain when you walk in that store. Yeah. You just you see how I see the world. Yes, and you will shop. And I you guarantee shop. you, because people, you go in there and you got to buy something. I mean, God. Well, thank you so much for spending all this time with us. You're it, welcome. It's been fabulous. It's it's tremendous fun having people. This is I say I have coffee. I try to have coffee five days a week. Having a good, honest conversation with good people mm-hmm. is a treasure 
that every human needs to cultivate. Mm -hmm. So it is core to our being mm -hmm. and people, they think it's just pure passing information. No, it's thought and mm -hmm. creativity and sparking and all. So like breaking bread, we should have bread this morning. But yeah, it's, there you go. this is the start of community. So yep. people need to be intentional about that as well. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. Thank you.